I think it's really archaic and that sort of old sort of uh, like tribalism, I think, within uh, healthcare that it's woo woo or fringe or quackery uh, to 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 do anything other than just take this medication. I really feel like that age is gone. Uh, there's still people clinging to it, but ultimately, people want to know what's your most effective option that causes you the least amount of side effects. And look, for some people, medications are going to be that and they need to be on it. But there's a lot of tools that researchers are looking at that really have no side effects and are very effective. And most of them are free or low cost. So, I, yeah, I think that the whole what calling things woo woo and quackery is a way to shut people up because it's this virtue of signaling. It's I'm an elitist and you're somehow, you know, less than me. But I don't think that that's cutting it for the average person out there that really just wants results. And I think the statistics speak for itself, because as a country, we spend more on healthcare than the next 10 top spending countries combined, yet we're the sickest with the shortest lifespan of all industrialized nations. So it's really the height of arrogance to then call something woo-woo because it's like the failing student like uh shaming the valid valedictorian of us actually getting people healthy hey everybody what's up it's chase today's episode is incredible that little chunk of wisdom you heard was from dr will cole he is a legendary functional medicine expert who specializes in clinically investigating factors around chronic disease around autoimmune conditions, hormonal imbalances, digestive stuff, and more. And I'm telling you, this is what I feel like is a huge piece of the future of medicine, of not just taking a pill, but looking at the whole organism, if you consider us an organism, and I do, not just, again, throwing a drug at, uh, at our problems, but what can we do to change our life? What can we do to narrow the tolerances of what we think feeling good actually is. If you're not familiar with functional medicine, Dr. Will Cole defines that early on for us. He also goes on to uh, detail a whole host of ways in which we as you know modern humans are being challenged and specifically what we can do to respond to those challenges around our health, not just eating, not just sleeping, and not just meditating all sorts of different functional ways that we can engage that. He is so ahead of his time. He's been talking about inflammation and stress and the food that we put in our body for a long, long time. He's got a new book out, which we do talk about, um, which is called Gut Feelings. Uh, and it's gut in all of the different senses of the word gut. I love today's episode, and I think you are going to too. So stand by. Yours truly and Dr. Will Cole. Dr. Will Cole, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, you have been on my radar for some time uh, based on a number of uh, maybe pockets of your work. I consume them primarily in books. Uh, today, we're talking about one of your books and an area of work called Gut Feelings, which is around um, our, I'll just say our gut, but for someone who uh, doesn't know you or your work mm -hmm. and the concept of gut feelings is a new new book or a new set of work that they aren't familiar with, how would you introduce yourself to the audience? So I'm a functional medicine doctor. Um, my day job is I started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers 13 plus years ago. So 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. 
every day. That's mainly what I'm doing. Uh, talking to people around the world, we ship labs to where they're at and really providing them a functional medicine perspective on health issues to look to just level up their health, to feel great, to deal with unanswered questions about their health. Um, so the books are just ripple effects of my focus and passion with my patients. And honestly, all the books are born out of many countless conversations that I've had with patients. And when you hear enough questions over and over again, you know, okay, look, there's so, so this palpable collective uh, yearning for information for people that want answers. And there's a lot of clinical experience in the books of just people that maybe don't want a functional medicine doctor right now, don't even know they need one maybe, and but want to have agency over their health. They want to start feeling better. So gut feelings is really a conversation around that this bi-directional relationship between mental health and physical health. And as I say in the book, like we, we like to separate mental health from physical health in the West, but mental health is physical health. Our brain is a part of our body just as much as anything else is. So it's really looking at the both gut and feelings as a sort of symbol of that duality, the physical and the mental, emotional, spiritual, and how both sides of that same coin impact things like autoimmune conditions, which is the main percentage of my patient base, and people that have brain health issues, which is another big percentage of people that I see, things like anxiety, depression, brain fog, and fatigue. Um, so that's really what it is. And um, teaching people protocols to help reclaim their health. Well, it is for all those reasons and others that I am very grateful to have you on the show. And I think it's going to be a super powerful hour. Um, I feel like I want to dive in if you're open to it. The, the folks that uh, we talked just briefly before we began uh, recording about the people who are on the other end of the phone here, this community is a community that identifies as creators, as entrepreneurs, as people who are builders. Uh, or if they're not building something right now, they're curious about how they can shift their life to do that. And yet, I think if we surveyed pop culture, those are also a cross-section of people who are potentially disproportionately um, subjected to chronic stress, uh, to uh, anxiety. Where's the next paycheck going to come from? What am I, you know, I'm taking this risk as an entrepreneur. There's all sorts of they're embedded both real and stories uh around the cross-section of people that i that we think about as in our community and i'm wondering is this are are these lives and are these stories and you know people who are looking out for themselves and their family rather than um only being a part of a big medical group is there some sort of correlation between what you see in your clinical settings with uh, people who are disproportionately affected, or is it is it is this as is everyone susceptible to some of the or to primarily the things that you focus on in your clinic? Uh, I, a huge percentage of my patients, profession-wise, would be exactly what you're explaining: people that are entrepreneurs, people that are in startup world, or people that work for corporate America that are dealing with high-stress jobs as well. And, you know, other than those, I see a lot of school teachers, which is a lot of stress with that profession. I see a lot of engineers uh, and I see a lot of people within the medical field, too. The commonality, whether you're an entrepreneur, you work in corporate America, you're an engineer, school teacher, or you're in medical field, the commonality is chronic stress. And yeah, it's, it is certainly a component to why they feel the way that they do. It's very nebulous in a way because it's how do you 
it's it's a that's a lot to unpack. It's a very individual conversation. And for for the reader out there, I'm thinking of who's reading the book. It is an individual reckoning for yourself to find out what does healthy margins, what do healthy boundaries look like? How can I make what I'm what I love and what I'm called to do, what I'm passionate for? How do I make this sustainable so I can do the things that I want long term? So my health doesn't, you know, keep me back at some point. Because oftentimes it, it we have such this this with a type A type personality and a culture that really prides itself on this burnout, you know, burnout culture and, and using seeing burnout as this badge of honor, it can be tough because it's so normalized in our culture, but we don't realize the people that I see on the outside, they look like they have it all together, but I'm looking at their labs with them and they tell me they don't have it all together. And they re they really will know, man, the rate I'm going, I'm not going to be able to do these, this for much longer because something's got to give. And I want to teach them how they can do both and they can still be a high performing, creative entrepreneur, but but nourish their body at the same time. So they're the machine that is them. It can can go on uh, sustainably. Well, you that was the fantastic like entree into how I learned about your work. Um, a couple of previous bodies of work, some of them in the form of books and others, just you know readings and stuff I've seen on the internet about around your, your work has to do with inflammation. Mm -hmm. um, that was a book called The Inflammation Spectrum, Find Your Food Triggers, Resetting Your System. Uh, the Keto Movement, Ketotarian, you talked about a plant-based version around that. Um, intuitive Fasting, the flexible way to intermittent fast. Um, before we start to tackle this, you know, this huge realm of stress and anxiety that underpins so much of your work and I guess the people who are listening right now are like, oh, I need to know more about that because I don't know anyone right now who says, you know what, I'm not stressed at all, don't need to manage it, it's not a thing. Um, but what is, let's start with the basics. You introduced yourself as in focusing on functional medicine. Um, how do you define that and why should someone care? Yeah, so it's, if I had to compare and contrast functional medicine with let's call it conventional or mainstream medicine. First thing is we interpret labs using a thinner reference range. So anybody that's listening or watching this right now, they know when I get when they get their labs, there's their biomarker, their number on the lab, and then they're being compared to this reference range, this X to Y interval of numbers. It's largely based on a statistical bell curve average of the population of that specific lab. So if you go to another lab, you'll see that reference range may vary from lab to lab. It's non-standardized for the most part. There's some exceptions to that. But people that are predominantly going to labs are people, sadly, that are feeling the best. That's why they're going to the labs. So there's a lot of people that intuitively know, man, my symptom, whether my, my fatigue, my anxiety, my weight loss resistance, my inflammatory symptom, whatever it may be, they want to find out what's going on. And the doctor runs these basic labs and the labs will oftentimes come back quote unquote normal. And they'll say, you're just stressed. You're just depressed. Here, take this antidepressant or you're just getting older or a lot of new moms are said, you know, it's just new mom being a new mom. But what they're unintentionally being told is they're a lot like the other people with health problems that they're being compared to and comparing yourself to people that aren't feeling so well 
is no way for you to find out how that heck you can feel good and why you feel the way that you do. So it, functional medicine, just because something's common doesn't necessarily mean it's normal. So we're looking at optimal, not average, like a thinner, tighter interval of numbers. Like where does vibrant wellness live? Where does ultimate like uh, human physiology reside? That's where we want to get you. So health and health problems exist on a spectrum. And that's, you mentioned my second book, The Inflammation Spectrum. It's really that conversation about that. And gut feelings is really a deeper dive into this concept of how people get there and what's the sort of underlying mechanisms of there, of that. Because by the time somebody is diagnosed with a health problem, it's about four to 10 years prior, research estimates, four to 10 years prior to that diagnosis when things were brewing on that inflammation spectrum. So this oftentimes doesn't happen overnight. And that when you're talking about stress and life and like the days turn into weeks and the weeks turn into months and months into the years, that's people's lives. And they look back and like, yeah, these, this probably didn't happen overnight. And it doesn't for most of us. So no matter where you're at on that continuum, what can you do today to start moving the needle in the positive direction for you? But again, still live your life. We're running more comprehensive labs in functional medicine a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about in gut feelings, like underlying gut problems and chronic infections and even the non-measurable stuff, but assessing it like chronic stress, unresolved trauma, how these mental, emotional, spiritual or feelings, things of gut feelings, how does that impact our physical health? It has to be addressed just as much as the physiological stuff. Um, and then we really look at what's known as bioindividuality. We're all different and there's not going to be this one size fits all approach to getting well. So it has to be tailored to the individual based on their labs, their health history. And, you know, and, and there's an art to it all, right? If something's unsustainable for somebody, it's, it's not going to bring about the results we're looking for. So you have to kind of adapt protocols based on the individual. So that's in a nutshell. We use food as medicine. We use natural medicines. We use medications when needed. We use a lot of biohacking stuff that's in the scientific literature, but we're applying it in patients' lives now so they don't have to wait for like the red tape of a system that is may never actually get to them in the mainstream model of care so that's kind of what it is no it's a yeah. beautiful yeah. framing and framework for how to think about it um and i i wasn't as dialed into that definition that is a great one where i'll be able to use it in the in in the future as well and as someone who's a big fan of functional medicine what I've enjoyed, and I think what is valuable to the listener, why they need to pay extra attention right now is that last bit you talked about, like you're basically getting access through a functional medicine person like yourself to ideas that haven't actually hit sort of mainstream yet, despite being known to be safe and known to be you know accurate and effective and a lot of the other <laughs> things that, that just take a long time through the yeah, traditional yeah. system. And, and as someone who through this show and being a high performer and someone who wants to identify and has friends that are in high performing circles, this used to be reserved, this information for people who, you know, were biohackers or had friends that were freakish doctors who were performing experiments on themselves and others. And, mm -hmm. and yet I see so much of that, even down, like you said, with the blood tests and it's like, okay, this is what, if you go to, you know, the hospital or your, you know, your primary care doc, they draw your blood, they're going to say you're fine, but this is not fine for you, this particular measure. I think that is so interesting. And this is why people ought to pay especially close attention to the next 45 minutes. And this is where I want to dive right in. You talk about in Gut Feelings, chronic, this is a quote, chronic stress is the ultimate junk food. Mm -hmm. Help me understand that. 
Yeah, it's 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 in part the ultimate junk food because it is very a lot. It's very much prescriptive for me on the clinical nutrition physiological side for me to say, okay, we know every food we eat either feeds inflammation or fights it. There's no neutral food. There's no Switzerland meal when it comes to like, okay, what does my breakfast, lunch, and dinner look like? How can I optimize it for them? Okay, eat more of these, eat less of these. Yes, there's bioindividuality of that to that, but it still is more prescriptive and black, cut and dried for people. Now, and we talk about it in the book. I, I go into deep dive on the food protocols for people to deal with that. But chronic stress on the feeling side of things, it is a lot more nebulous. It's a lot more, all right, what does that look like? Everybody's bandwidth and resilience to these things is different. What somebody can handle stress-wise, maybe the next person can't. It's cumulative with the physiological stuff, like their resilience is weakened because of physical stuff they're going through. But ultimately it needs to be looked at and it's and it's not prescriptive in the sense of i can't tell somebody to just not stress like don't have that anymore right it is like that doesn't we need then tools they, right right, tools. right exactly then they stress about not stressing if i tell them that and and so yeah it, it's these tools that and i will say this too for the type a entrepreneur creative high-performing person the tools so to speak are very uh, unsexy and unappealing to them oftentimes because they see it as almost a waste of time many times. They say, oh, wow, I want the I want to go work out if I'm going to do anything for my wellness. I want to do the intermittent fasting. I want to do this food protocol that's like very black and white and I see the results right away. It is very uncomfortable and almost seems like it's not given the gravity that it needs to deal with the stress issues because they see it as like a waste of time. Their time's already limited. And then you're telling me to do breath work, right? Telling me to like have healthy boundaries and say no sometimes. That just seems radical. Um, so it is uh, very important because chronic stress, we know, raises inflammation levels just as much as a food that doesn't love you back. And I see people all the time that have, they have their nutrition dialed in. But they're serving their body a big slice of stress every day, and it's spiking up inflammation, dysregulating the nervous system just as much as that meal that they don't have because they would never have it because it's it's not good for them. But the stress is this this what I call these metaphysical junk foods that's impacting their physical health. Let's talk about this the idea of um, this the so chronic stress, and at some point. Like stress is good, right? Because if you, you if you want to build muscle, for example, you need to stress the muscle, and it's in a response to that stress that the muscle will grow and and will be able to lift more at a future date. And yet, here we are at a culture that is pumping information at us twenty four seven, where we're always on at work, we're lying in bed thinking about we didn't have our ancestors didn't have the inputs that we have now, and you know, how do we help define what is, you know, what's good for us and, you know, getting in cold water is great, but, you know, getting a phone call from your boss every morning at 630 with all the list of what's wrong in the weekly report is terrible for us. Like, how do we, how do we set boundaries? How do we understand when, you know, a little bit is a good thing, but, but too much is too much. Yeah. It, it's, it, that is definitely a bio-individual conversation for people to have with themselves and one that I have with my patients of how, how do we have healthy boundaries with these things in our life? Because you're right. I mean, 
the, the, the concept of hormesis or a hormetic effect on the body, it's good stress. It actually makes your body more resilient. And the human species would not be here if we couldn't handle some stress. And I think having grit and resilience is important. And I think in some ways we kind of lack resilience and grit as, as a culture today. But in part, it's because there's what researchers refer to as an epigenetic genetic mismatch or an evolutionary mismatch. There's this chasm between our body, our genetics, and our microbiome, all the bacteria in our body, and the world around us. Because researchers estimate that 99% of our genetics haven't changed in 10,000 years. But the world around us, of which you know our way that we're living our life stress being a part of it, as well as environmental toxins, foods, et cetera, that, that has changed very dramatically in a very finite period in time when you're putting that into context with the totality of human existence. If, existence so you're looking at it from an ancestral health perspective. Um, so our relationships with technology is a major part of that. And the constant sort of background anxiety, the background stressor that's never lightening up. Uh, so healthy boundaries with, with, I would say our professions is another one that I hear a lot from patients, but the relationship with technology is oftentimes tied into their relationship with their job, right? The email's always there. They're always the dings and the pings and the notifications. And we're constantly in that fight or flight state. It, and it's a contributing factor, if not a big contributing factor to many people's chronic stress state and our 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 autonomic nervous system is paying a price we are we are dysregulating our nervous system strengthening that fight or flight stressed sympathetic response and our parasympathetic is weak uh, or what researchers refer to as having poor vagal tone the vagus nerve is the largest cranial nerve in the body it's responsible for the parasympathetic which is the resting the digesting state that aspect of the autonomic nervous system is weak. And a lot of what gut feelings is about is how do we strengthen that vagus nerve? So those things that we see as like a waste of time are actually therapeutic exercises for this vagus nerve, which we need for resilience. We need to actually feel great doing what we love. Since I'm just envisioning having you already mentioned this word, you know, the bio-individual, you said that a bunch. So I don't want to try and generalize, like take, uh, you know, inflammation or sugar or, and ask you to say, you know, what, what's someone who's eats too much sugar, what are you going to tell them? But I do want to know of the patients, let's say the spectrum of patients that you see in your clinic or the research that you do, or some combination of both, what are the most common, um, elements that you see as out of balance and what are some of the therapies that you propose to help regain that lost health? Mm. So um, on the physical side of gut feelings, the gut side of it all, I mean, at the foods that don't love most humans back, I mean, sugar is one of them for sure. It's ubiquitous, right? It's in, it's in a lot of foods and it's even the, most people know that, right? That's, so that's not a game changing thing, but I would say be mindful of, the euphemisms for sugar, because it's hidden in a lot of different words, right? When you have words like agave nectar, it just automatically sounds 
more natural, right? Like they're squeezing this agave after the farmer picked it and they're putting it in that can. Therefore, it's good, right? But <laughs> it's still high in fructose. It is just brilliant marketing because you automatically made something sound more green and more like holistic. But so I would be mindful of the grams of added sugar. Maybe do an experiment like a day or two days of tracking in like a MyFitnessPal pal or chronometer or something like that and look at the amount of grams of added sugar. We all have bio-individual tolerances to added sugar, but research is clear. I mean, humans are eating too much sugar. We're eating way more sugar than our ancestors did in a lifetime in just one year. <laughs> I, a, I saw that. It was a crazy internet thing. It was like the person who lived in 1820 ate like yeah. 50 pounds of or 14 pounds of sugar in their whole life. And we're eating like 57 pounds a year per person yeah. or some crazy number. Yeah. I don't mean like. Yeah, it is disproportionately. So that's awakening. I mean, that's a part of it. What's awakening these genetic predispositions that have been there for lying dormant for 10,000 years, but are being triggered and awoken like never before because of this genetic epigenetic mismatch, meaning our our genetics, microbiomes, genetics, and the world around us are epigenetics. So look at sugar, look at industrial seed oils. They're not, I mean, all of these things are bad, not just for us, but also bad for the planet. Things like canola oil, vegetable oil, soybean oil. Really, the human diet today is disproportionately high in omega-6, which is a polyunsaturated fat. But the ratios of omegas 3, 6, and 9 are really important. These are polyunsaturated fats that are completely fine in their whole food form, but they're having these really refined oils that are in a lot of packaged foods. So read labels because even the healthier foods out there are used, use these seed oils because they're cheap uh, and they're not good when you're over consuming them. Um, and then look at, I would say um, for many people, it's gluten containing grains, which there's nuanced view. I have a nuanced view of this. I think how we if it's like a sourdough bread or an ancient grain, is it what we've done to the grain or is it the grain itself? I think it's a bit of both people, but looking at gluten containing grains, we know it increases intestinal permeability or leaky gut syndrome. We know it can drive inflammation levels. Um, but I have people that patients that go to Europe and they have the wheat there and they're completely fine. So it, it's a lot of, but then I think with that scenario, I think, okay, maybe it's, the space in which they eat that meal. If they're less stressed when they're on vacation, maybe they can handle a little bit more too. So that's some of the feeling, like the gut side of gut feelings, but the feeling side, like the really leaning into these vagal tone, these therapeutic tools uh, are very important. So breath work is one of the things that I talk about in the book and these more advanced breath work, like holotropic breath work um, and different meditation practices and ways that we can create uh, healthy boundaries in our life. It's so calming to a stressed out nervous system. Let's talk about a dysregulated nervous system. You've said that a few times. That phrase has been thrown around more in the last two years than the previous 200, it feels like. And let's, let's it, it makes a ton of sense to me, but just so we're on a level playing field and we can, you know, Trot this out for our listeners and watchers right now. What do you mean by that? How common is it? And, you know, after you've defined it, then we can get into some of this, the, the um, solutions that you talk about, breath work, meditation, others. Sure. So the autonomic nervous system has two main branches that I kind of 
mentioned in passing, but it has the sympathetic fight or flight response and the parasympathetic, the resting, digesting response, and then the enteric nervous systems or the guts nervous systems, the third branch. But they all are important and needed to function. Not, like sympathetic is not a bad thing. The problem is it's just dysregulated, meaning that this, the sympathetic is overactive and the parasympathetic is underactive. So when people are, you know, using that term and passing of a dysregulated nervous system, that's what we're talking about. It is like a seesaw where the sympathetic is overactive and up and the parasympathetic is down. That's one way of thinking about it. So a lot of what I'm doing, even from a nutrition side, when we're talking about what are what, like therapeutically to support gut health, in part, it's to regulate the vagus nerve because it's so innervating the gut brain axis, which the gut in, in, is known in the scientific literature as the second brain. I mean, 95% of serotonin is made in the gut, 50% of dopamine. So our happy and pleasure neurotransmitters predominantly are made in the gut. So even the nutrition side of it all are predominantly made to regulate the nervous system, which the gut's a major part of the nervous system. And um, so, yeah, it, it is. that's what we're talking about there. And we want to gain that vagal tone. So mo most people have a weak vagal tone and that's associated in the research to many, many, many things. So to answer the second part of your question, how common is it? It is extremely common. It exists on a spectrum. On one end of that spectrum is what it's a diagnosis. It's called dysautonomia, dysautonomia. It is a, the nervous system is perpetually stuck in a hypervigilant state where they have heart palpitations, panic attacks it's associated with things like chronic fatigue syndrome, different autoimmune problems. Not everybody is at that point, but then on the other end of the spectrum, it's the background anxiety. It is trouble falling asleep, staying asleep. It is the heart, heart palpitations that can happen there too. It's in things like fatigue, brain fog issues, weight loss resistance, um, hormonal problems. Those are the earlier stage signs that the, the nervous system's dysregulated. And we probably have some poor vagal tone that we need to address. Yeah. This, you know, when hearing you speak and in reading um, gut feelings in particular, but some of your other work, I just, it just echoes in my head. Like I hear so many people and I'm, I'm like my own experience, for example, with technology always being on and having the hustle culture as a lifelong creator entrepreneur. I'm, I'm so like all these phrases are so like they're everywhere and everyone I know, and I can, I, I might actually be able to say that honestly, like almost everyone I'll say that because I, I can definitely agree to that. Almost everyone I know, has some complaint in the constellation that is our lives of how, you know, one or more of the things that you've mentioned in the last like five minutes. Yeah. And yet as a culture, we're, it seems like we're just going deeper into the abyss and it feels like we're hanging on by threads to these things that can, you know, help, help remedy or rectify us now. So question first, are, are we actually sicker than we were uh, on these axes that you talk about, you know, neural, um, neurologically gut, um, emotionally, which I want to talk a little bit more about, or is the amount of information that's out there in the world, it's sort of like violence, right? You, you, 
violent crime is at an all-time low relative to the history of the world. And yet information in the news about violent crime is up, you know, a hundred thousand percent because news travels fast and we have information that's packaged and the internet and all those things. So is it a case of it's actually really safe and we just got more, or is it a case of we're actually really healthy, but we just know about all these other things that are wrong with us, or are we actually in a worse off state than we have been historically? I think it's a, yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I think certainly no one can argue we have better diagnostics, more information, more research, more access to information so people can learn more. And what was maybe the, I, I think the, the internet connecting people and raising awareness collectively to know, oh yeah, that's what I'm going through too. And let's learn more about this so I can find out about it. I, there's, that's never happened before in human history. So I do think there's a part of a collective awareness to these things. Whereas before it was like, whatever, some random dude on a farm and he was going through something and like, he didn't know someone across the country was going through the same thing as him. So there's a certain level of that where I think the zeitgeist and awareness of conversation has, uh, it, it is just better awareness around these type of issues, but it doesn't explain the totality of it. These things, I think even the most conservative person that looks at the statistics will say these things are growing over time. And I mean, shocking statistics of just, even if you look at just insulin resistance alone, like the vast majority of people are insulin resistant, meaning that they're somewhere on that insulin resistance spectrum, type two diabetes is on one end, but you know, things like PCOS in women and weight loss resistance and sort of insatiable cravings and hangriness, that is without a doubt grown over the course of the past few decades. Uh, and autoimmune conditions. I, has grown, exploded. I mean, we're talking about 50 million plus Americans that are just diagnosable, let alone the millions more that are somewhere on that autoimmune inflammation spectrum to mental health issues. I think there's no real there's legitimate. Most people are saying, yes, these things are growing. Yes, a certain diagnostic and access to, to labs and doctors are part of it that explain the numbers, but not everything. I mean, the shocking statistic that I mentioned in the book is the average high schooler today, the average like child today has the same level of anxiety as a psychiatric patient in the 1950s. The, the amount of anxiety in young adults and, and young entrepreneurs today is shocking. Uh, and that was not the case. And even if you also, like all these things are coming to my mind of food allergies and these food sensitivities issues. Like you talk to anybody of a certain age, they will say, yeah, there was no peanut allergy or wheat allergy in my school. Now it's like the amount of kids that run to the school nurses because they're seeing all of these allergies and food reactions, it's staggering. So there's some like obvious things if you just look around that this is a new frontier. Okay. That was a, an excellent, helpful answer to question one, which is, okay, so it's real. And the second piece is, I, I don't know a person who doesn't have one of those. And you just mentioned the number 50 million Americans are at least somewhere on that spectrum, which is, that is a staggering number. And again, it's, it's, it's it's certainly more than the zeitgeist because we see it, we feel it, we experience it. You know, the the mental emotional side, 
the physical like gut health, for example, I'll, I'll use my own, my wife as an example, Kate, she has been tracking some, you know, cross section of autoimmune or gut or food allergy. She was one of the people that definitely couldn't touch wheat in the United States. And we lived in, in Paris for a number of years, no issues, zero issues whatsoever. And it, she was still working at the same job over there. So you brought up the, well, maybe there were, she was happier working in Paris, but like, so if everybody's got it, the, there has to be some sort of like foundation. This is what my big takeaways from, from gut feelings were, is there's, there's sort of a new level of awareness and a new level, new foundation for how we should be looking at our health. That is fundamentally, maybe before you even get in blood panels, like, what are you doing to set these boundaries? What are you putting into your body or what are you not putting into your body that you should? So those to me, we've sort of touched briefly on them, but there's a concept in the book called shame flammation and how to have a shame flammation free life. I understand all the aspects of, uh, nutrition. There's a, you know, a whole lifetime of research and material in the book for you to reference, but this is one that stands out that I'd love for you to share with our listeners. Yeah. So these are the insidious things, right? It is sh shame's a big topic. It's, it's researched in the medical literature of how it is, it is a killer for people. It is a contributing factor to many people's inflammation because it is, it is that part of that background anxiety. There's a lot of shame with unresolved trauma. And I go really in depth about the research about unresolved trauma and how it really can be stored in the body, raising inflammation levels, impacting our hormones, our endocrine system, blood sugar issues, and even bigger topics like intergenerational trauma of how trauma can be on a physical level inherited from, from parent to child through generations. Um, but there's also shame with chronic stress. I mean, we talked about that sort of that, that, that stereotypical, let's just say the typical patient that I see that's super stressed out They're but they're, they're so used to being stressed out that they rate their stress, like maybe a five out of 10, but it's really a 10 out of 10 because they've norm normalized it so much. Our scale is out of whack. Big time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's, yeah, I'm so used to it. It's all right. But it's, they're constantly on that fight or flight stress uh, uh, action in their life that there's a lot of shame around that. I mean, because they aren't showing up for their families in the way that they want to. They're kind of irritable. They're snapping at, at their loved ones. They're, they aren't able to do all the things with them because they're preoccupied and not present with them. And they're oftentimes grabbing food that doesn't love them back because it's convenient and quick and they have so many other things going on. There's a lot of shame around chronic stress. So this phenomenon, this concept of shame inflammation, how does things like shame and stress and trauma, how does that impact our physiology, i.e. raising inflammation, dysregulating our nervous system? And maybe just to define this real quickly is that inflammation is the commonality between just about every health problem. So it's when you look at type two diabetes, autoimmune conditions, digestive problems, fatigue, brain fog. I, I talk about what's called the cytokine model of cognitive function. Cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. So it's research looking at how, how inflammation impacts how our brain works. How does inflammation impact mental health? So 
Shameflammation is implicated in many things. So the physiological stuff like the foods and environmental toxins and all that stuff will raise inflammation. But as I mentioned with chronic stress and shame and trauma, that stuff raises inflammation just as much. I talk about one study in the book, how they had people do a stressful exercise. It was public speaking and math, which apparently is what stresses us out the most. I, I'm right. I'm with you people on the math at least, but <laughs> I, it, it, they had the high, the people did this had high interleukin six levels, IL six, which is an inflammatory marker that we run in labs. It's associated with high sensitivity C-reactive protein, which is a very common inflammation test that I run for patients too. So the people that had the highest practices of self-compassion had the lowest level of levels of interleukin-6, the lowest inflammation levels. So self-compassion is a big tool that I talk about in the book. It's the antithesis of shame and stress because there's a grace around your life where you have a bit of, of self-compassion and not just self-compassion, but compassion for other people. So these are practices that, again, sound a little bit woo-woo, sound a little bit less prescriptive, but they're actually very physiological. When you practice these, these practice these tools, you can start to gain a resilience and strengthen that vagus nerve so you can lower inflammation levels. Yeah, that's part of something that I want to talk about this woo-woo thing. First of all, I want to reference, I had to flag this in my notes that was it's that that math and speaking in public thing is as above, so below in the book. Um, as a reference for anyone who's got the book, you want to check out that chapter. It's it's pretty eye-opening. Um, but the uh, this idea of something being woo-woo, like uh, it's very important to me that we be in this moment as clear as we can with our listeners and watchers. This idea, like even as a functional medicine doctor, you're saying, cool, well, this might seem, you know, woo-woo, but let's just for a second talk about what breath does. You can, I can shoot a drug into your IV that will say have some, uh, some result. And if the goal is to lower blood pressure, the quickest way to actually lower your blood pressure is to take 10 deep breaths. Is it not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for, for, for folks, you know, and, and the, the concept I'm using breath because you mentioned it and someone, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was, I was having a conversation, uh, not about this book, but it was a, a, a similar topic. It was, and they were like, yeah, but you know, and I'm like, yo, whoa, we, we got to breathing. You breathing is a way of regulating this body that we're mm-hmm. given. And if you can, you know, if you're stressing out you can even just look at a piece of paper that tells you when you're stressed out, do these three things. Cause you have forgotten or you're mm-hmm. not in a position to recognize it yourself. See the diagram, maybe write it on your hand, like take 10 deep breaths. That is what we have called woo woo has its basis in science. And just so happens that you can actually experientially, you can get the benefit immediately. If you actually did it, you sit down and you measure blood pressure before you take 10 breaths and then you measure it after it's going to be lower, right? Yeah, I, exactly. And really science is catching up with antiquity. Like the, what was seen is like, it's really just us as a culture and the height of hubris that we forgot what humans knew intuitively for thousands of years. Somehow we got divorced and there's this collective amnesia 
that we forgot. Like humans didn't need randomized control trials. They just knew when they went out, went out in nature that they there was this meditative sort of connection and and it, it felt good. It was good for their health. They lived in nature. But now we live this sort of sterilized life that, again, this evolutionary mismatch that now there is randomized controlled trials that looks at things like what we call forest bathing because it comes from the Japanese phrase shinrin-yoku, which translates to English as forest bathing. But it's using nature as a medicine, using nature as a meditation that our ancestors didn't know the mechanisms. They didn't have a fancy name for it. They just called it life. But now we do have science. For people that need the science, there actually is science here. That's just one tool that I talk about in the book. But breathwork, there's so much science around it. I mean, look, the Cleveland Clinic has a functional medicine center. And the Institute for Functional Medicine is who's trained all the doctors there and myself and my team. So this is not, I think it's really archaic and that sort of old sort of uh, like tribalism, I think, within uh, healthcare that it's woo-woo or fringe or quackery uh, to, to, to do anything other than just take this medication. I really feel like that age is gone. Uh, there's still people clinging to it. But ultimately, people want to know what's your most effective option that causes you the least amount of side effects. And look, for some people, medications are going to be that and they need to be on it. But there's a lot of tools that researchers are looking at that really have no side effects and are very effective. And most of them are free or low cost. So I, yeah, I think that the whole what calling things woo-woo and quackery is a way to shut people up because it's this virtue signaling. It's I'm an elitist and you're somehow, you know, less than me. But I don't think that that's cutting it for the average person out there that really just wants results. And I think the statistics speak for itself, because as a country, we spend more on healthcare than the next 10 top spending countries combined, yet we're the sickest with the shortest lifespan of all industrialized nations. So it's really the height of arrogance to then call something woo-woo <laughs> because it's like the failing student like uh shaming the valid valedictorian of us actually getting people healthy this is i'm gonna use that as the opening to the show that's just too good because that's like that to me in recognizing it as hubris is i think it's spot on that's like a it's a, a laser beam to the truth right there. This, all these things that we have historically, you know, shunned for all various reasons, the health care industry, not, not alone in that, but certainly a major player. Like it's time we shape up to that end. Uh, and going specifically into the book now, I'll just say it again. It's gut feelings. Um, You've, we've talked a little bit about uh, the chronic stress part and diet. We focused on sugar, but there are, there are others. Um, we, you mentioned, but I'd like to sort of revisit uh, unresolved trauma. Um, so I'm going to put a pin in that for a second. But well, actually, well, let's let's do un, unresolved trauma. But I also want to talk about toxic productivity. So unresolved trauma. We talked about the connection there to the dysregulated nervous system, but that it can also be intergenerational. Um, I say, I would say I speak to, of the, anyone I'm willing to have a conversation or who's willing to have a conversation like this with me about this kind of stuff. I would say nine out of 10, and these are, this is, not, this is across gender, across race, socioeconomic, uh, nine out of 10 
would say they're stressed out. Also nine out of 10, this is again, anecdotal, my experience would say, but you know, my trauma is, it's just, it's the same as everybody else's. It's like, and mm -hmm. there, to be fair, there are people who have suffered trauma that they identify with, but I'm really interested in this conversation with you about the sort of the sneaky trauma mm -hmm. that what I would say that everyone has. I'm mm -hmm. wondering if you can comment on that. Yeah. And it's one of the top things that we talk about when I'm having an initial telehealth consult. And I, I talk about it in the book because of that, that these things that we, we almost, people will gaslight themselves. They'll say, well, it's, they'll, they'll know other people that have gone through worse. So they'll say, yeah, it's like, it, it's not as bad as them. So therefore it's not that big of a deal, but Research is clear. I mean, one of the things we have patients fill out is an ACE questionnaire. I talk about it in the book, but it stands for Adverse Childhood Experience. And the higher your ACE score, research shows you're more likely to have something like a metabolic issue, diabetes, insulin resistance, weight loss resistance. You may increase risk of autoimmune problems, increased risk of things like IBS, you know, like digestive problems, increased risk of hypervigilant nervous system, like anxiety, depression, et cetera. So the questions within the ACE questionnaire are things like, was there sexual abuse uh, as a child? Was there physical abuse growing uh, up? Was there substance abuse in the home? Was there mental illness in the home growing up? Was there just neglect? I see a lot of what they call like latchkey kids. Like they went home and the parents, they had a nice, relatively nice childhood. Their parents loved them, but they had to fend for themselves. And there was a lot of like, not a lot of nurture, nurturing going up. That is an ingredient within the confluence of factors. Is it the only variable to consider? No, but it is certainly a piece of the puzzle for many people. And for some people, it's a big piece of the puzzle. So if you've dealt with all the other pieces of the puzzle, but you haven't looked at that one, I, those are the areas, those are the dark corners that I really wanted to talk about in the book, because I see those are the linchpins for many people to like move past that plateau. Like they're better off than they are if they, like they're doing the nutrition stuff, they're doing exercising, but they don't realize that that thing that they've gaslit themselves over is actually a piece to their health puzzle. Not the only piece, but a piece. So yeah, it is a massive issue and we know it's stored in the body. It's our body is a cellular library and our thoughts, like how we speak to ourselves, our words, our experiences from our past are the books that fill up that cellular library. And it impacts things like methylation, which is impacts how inflammation is expressed. It, it impacts how your nervous system is regulated. Mm. Very, very helpful. I know a lot of folks that fall into that category where, well, you know, so-and-so has it worse than me, or I don't feel stressed out, or I don't feel like I was traumatized, or I've been able to manage it my whole life. I don't know why I should mm -hmm. pay attention to this or look in the dark corner under the covers or whatever now, mm -hmm. but it turns out that now is when people are getting sick, right? And yeah. We're, yeah. We're, we're quick to run to the pill, but not so quick to you know, go talk to a professional mental health professional. Um, thank you for that, that piece. I'm hoping that someone out there who's listening can take away, uh, specifically some advice and some heartfelt, earnest work there. Uh, let's talk about this toxic positive or toxic productivity. Toxic positivity is probably in there somewhere too, but yeah. <laughs> productivity, let's yeah. talk about yeah. the idea, you know, so many people in our culture about how to get more things done. And it, it 
you know, time management as I understand it is, is like in absolute shambles right now because so, you know, again, our attention is divided or there's mm -hmm. so many, you know, competing factors. Talk to me about uh, toxic productivity. Yeah. So it's, it's d definitely intimately tied to chronic stress, but it, it's someone that's constantly on that go, go, go part of that hustle culture that it, their body is going to pay for it. Like they, you know, as I say in the book, like if you don't find a time to rest, your body's going to pick a time for you. And healthy boundaries are just important for this. Like to be the most effective, the most highly better, best version of yourself. Sometimes it's saying no and like letting no be your multivitamin and like saying it often. And people think I'm going to miss out on this. Like this is a career thing that's going to be important. If I say no to this, I'm going to miss out on something professionally. But I, I have to tell you that I have, it's the unsustainability and we all have to make individual decisions about this. But I see many people that are, it's where, how they're going is going to be unsustainable for them. So sometimes to be a sustainable version of yourself, it's to be like the most productive thing they could do is like doing nothing sometimes. And, and I talk about these ancient practices in the book, like uh, Huga, like it's been used in Scandinavian, Danish countries of just like going inward, like shutting down technology, reading a book, like nourishing and grounding yourself in these practices. Our culture would not call that productive, but I know the people that are creating these healthy margins or what I call in the book, these acts of stillness, when they are, when they are showing up, they're the best versions of themselves and they can go on for years and years and years of their life because they're filling up their battery and they're constantly thinking they're a robot, but really they're not a robot. I hate to break it to everybody out there, but you're not a robot. Well, Yuga, uh, as a concept is like, I literally had a note here and let's talk about these moments of, of, uh, stillness. I think that sort of underlines my desire to talk about the, the productivity part and the irony for me in this. And again, as I was reading, it's like all of the best stuff in my life has come. There's like, there's these two, there's this like a gathering of information and then there's the processing. And the reality is we can't possibly process information at, you know, at, at any sort of depth when we're in peak input or gathering mode. And I'm looking back on my own life as I'm reading your book and talk and like all the best shit is when I was like quiet and still or alone or reflective or contemplative or, and none of those are the things that especially some personality types will seek, will chase because it seems like that's where all the gold is. But if you're not doing the reflecting and the pausing and the stillness, as you talk about the you don't actually get the benefit. So I'm wondering, can you, can you, you know, go one level deeper on that? What, where, what do, where do people really screw that up? Yeah. I just feel like to be, if you're talking about a creative person and no matter who you are, right. If we're all creating something, right. Even if you don't identify as a creative person, like I really feel like I, I talk to all different types of professions. They're all creatives in their own way. And I feel like to be the best version of that, whatever that is, you have to have the yin and the yang. You have to have both sides of that coin. And our it's it's those moments that we can be a channel for what we're called to do. Because you are on a physiological level level 
regulating our nervous system enough to operate the way that you are best operating. And I think a lot of people don't realize that because they feel more is always better and stillness is weakness. But the reality is it is that is a massive myth that hopefully we can bust through this conversation that um, it is um, it is definitely the antithesis. We have to be nourishing both sides of our nervous system and realizing the parasympathetic is is not getting the attention that it deserves. <laughs> but hopefully through reading the book and this conversation, people can realize that, hey, this aspect of my nervous system needs strengthened. And I'm going to not only be a better performer and be the best version of myself, but it's going to be more sustainable as well. Because look, I mean, that this this sobering, sobering statistics are when you look at autoimmune issues, we know that stress and things like like stress and trauma will can trigger this. But if you look at one of the leading causes of death in the world right now, it's heart attack and stroke and very much associated with things like this chronic stress hustle culture that we're facing as a world today. And the majority of people, their first symptom of a heart attack or stroke is death. And they feel fine until they're not here anymore. So you're sometimes people don't have the warning signs to do something about it. And we have to realize that this is fueled by chronic stress. And we should not normalize something that is really killing us. Um, I, the highest compliment I feel like I could give you is that this, your book is, uh, now on my list of gifts to a, a large number of people in my Im immediate community. And I can't wait till you start shipping those here in a couple of weeks Thank to, you, friend, to, friend. to, to, to have this. Um, I also in, you know, hoping to save a lot of the what we covered today for people to read on their own in the book or listen via audiobook. But there has to be, you know, sort of like a, I guess a final concept here before we wrap is there has to be one area of all of the stuff that you talk about specifically around your gut. You talk a lot about feeding your gut and your brain and feeding, you know, this, the soul pieces of it. And what gets missed though? What, what is the not obvious thing that people can do what what even in conversations like this like i've you know we have a limited amount of time i had to sort of focus my inquiries on a handful of areas that were interesting to me because of people close to me that have had some of the issues that you've you've mentioned or me personally but there's definitely something that i missed in this conversation mm -hmm. what's what is what did i gloss over or what did we not spend enough time on that you think is a big deal well, I think we you did a really good. Obviously, you know what you're doing. You're doing this for 13 plus years, right? But <laughs> so I think you you narrowed it down like a champ, a pro. Um, you know, a concept that I talk about in the book is is JOMO, right? It's the antithesis of our FOMO culture. I think social media is part of that too, right? Um, this fear of missing out. It's hyper connection. It is, you know, this FOMO inducing content in social media and this concept of JOMO or the joy of missing out, I find is, is it's pretty, it can be easy for introverts like me, but many people, it's like, they really just, it's scary. The idea of not doing all the things and being on social media and knowing all of the stuff. Um, so it is intertwined throughout the book and talking about these ancient pra practices like um, Huga 
And what does that look like on a practical level and protocols for that? So each day within the protocol, they get a gut action item or a gut tool and a feelings tool. And it's a way to sort of nourish both sides of that sort of mind body connection. So um, I don't know. I, that, that's, that's one. And then there's this one aspect of that I feel like for a dysregulated nervous system, the research is really interesting. It's, it's, called ruikatsu in Japanese, it translates to English as tear seeking. And it's using almost this like sacred crying that I think a lot in our culture, crying is seen as weakness too. And um, research shows that it, it, these communal crying sessions that are performed in J Japan are a way for a community, but be a way to regulate the nervous system and release these things like oxytocin and calm inflammation levels. So sometimes people just need to like, cathartically metabolize stored stuff, whether it's metabolized stored stress or stored trauma from their body. There's these things that, that we just sometimes need to just let ourselves go there instead of holding it in or distracting us ourselves or numbing ourselves with social media and things like alcohol and food and and work and being addicted to work and productivity. All these things are important. And sometimes it's looking at how we're numbing and distracting ourselves with either work, food, alcohol, or social media, and go to these dark corners. It's where healing can oftentimes be found. Mm. That is a great exclamation point for our conversation. Dr. Will, thank you so much for being on the show. Congratulations on another amazing book. Um, again, if uh, you're new to Dr. Will's work, uh, it is a fantastic book. Gut Feelings is the title. Um, we will, this episode that we're recording right now will drop during your pub week here to help people understand they can actually get the book right now if you're listening. Um, does a great job of demystifying this gut brain connection and providing a really healthy and thoughtful framework to repair these relationships between how you eat, what you think about, how you spend your time, and importantly, how you feel. Dr. Will, thank you so much. Grateful to have had you on the show. Anywhere else you'd steer folks? You mentioned your, you know, your telehealth protocols and you know, we can get you a little bit in the book, but any, any other places you'd give us as a destination? Yeah, for sure. Everything's at drwillcool.com. Um, and the telehealth clinic is there. You can, there's new options like telehealth options if people are interested in that, running labs, et cetera. Um, my podcast, The Art of Being Well, the links are there too. Yeah, but that's where they can find all the stuff, drwillcool.com. Awesome. Thank you again so much uh, from myself and Dr. Will. Uh, we both bid you a great day and uh, we bid you adieu until next time. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community, all of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, 
the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective massive positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing the show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together.